Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Jay Kill. And I'm Elias Rosner. And today we are concluding the second half of the third war of the epic that is the Annihilation Saga. Excelsior. Yeah, we got a lot of kings, a lot of wars. Do you think we have more wars or kings at this point? Um, you know, I think... Across the entire Annihilation Saga, we've probably had more wars, but... By the end of this, there are quite a few kings. There's so many kings at the end of this. We've had some, you know, leave, some come back. But in the end, the real kings were the friends we made along the way. That is not that untrue, actually. <laughs> um, but so if you're just joining us, we are at part... 10 i believe yeah part 10 of our of part of 13 or 14 parts of a huge comic run that i like to call uh, the annihilation saga it is mostly by uh, dan abnett and andy lanning and it is the comic that is the first appearance of the team that would go on to be the stars of the hit guardians of the galaxy movies though these comics don't uh, resemble the movies that much um and what's fun is at this point you can really see where the movies are drawing inspiration more than you have in previous issues we've run. But also, mm-hmm. you can um, you can tell that they weren't, like, planning or building towards any movie, right? Like, this this isn't them building IP like they like to do later. This is just a, a crazy comic run. Yeah. If you heard a squeak while I was talking in there, a cat definitely stepped on a toy. Oh. Oh. Love it when the cats jump in. It's actually part nine. But we've been doing this so long that our brains are just fried enough that we can't count anymore. <laughs> um, it happens. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of wild how much has happened across all of these and how much continues to happen in this second half of War of Kings, where we're bopping around from issue to issue, jumping everywhere. Yeah. We've... And yet... When we were doing this, when I was re- doing the reading order, I'm like, well, it, we didn't need to do it this piecemeal, but we kind of did. Well, well I, there's a couple points where I marked it. I kind of like it where um, I think something I, I wrote down in my notes is I think that these sorts of war stories actually work really well for the crossover event format. Because mm-hmm. what you end up seeing is uh, these ripple effects where uh, the heroes will do one operation in one book, and then you can see the effects of it happen at a later book. And um, yeah. even though the heroes themselves don't know how they're affecting each other, because we get to see all the different pieces of the story, we can see the way the different op- the operation comes together. And I think that uh, since war stories are usually about people with these limited missions in the, uh, operating within like a greater scope, mm-hmm. the, the crossover ends up being a really fun way to play with that sort of story. Exactly. Yeah. And we get that here, where kind of Nova, the Guardians, and then Ascension are all their own, essentially, fronts. And War of Kings touches on them, and like they, they bleed into each other, but for the most part, they're very self-contained. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like. It reminds me a lot of a, a later event that I think uh, took a lot of inspiration from this one, but I thought was even better, was um, War of the Realms. Mm-hmm. The big Jason Aaron Thor conclusion, uh, yes. which... Also had a lot of things where different surprising characters were on missions and uh, certain books could not start up until other books had concluded and it was meticulously planned. Um, I I think that that takes a lot of the – 
ideas from this story and takes them even further. But I think this story is pretty fun. And uh, the Nova issues that we're going to start with, I think, are some of the funnest in the bunch, actually. Nova has been really hit or miss for me in this big reread, where Mm -hmm. sometimes it kind of goes in a weird direction. And I'm like, is that really what we want to do with the Nova book? But when it's like the main story about Richard Ryder and his growth as a character and his relationship with the Nova Corps, I really like how Abnett and Lanning have been building this up into Marvel's own uh, ripoff Green Lanterns that I like just as much as the originals, actually. Yeah. I feel that. And I think I was feeling kind of a a bit of that lull in Nova in a few of the past ones. But now that we are, I guess, back to being in the middle of a war, it's weird. I think Nova Nova's at his best when he's just kind of stuck in the middle of a war. Yeah, well, that's kind of sad. It is sad, but that's been kind of his arc in this series is been he went from being like a Spider-Man like hero to being a tough war vet. And they've sold that character arc so much that when you put him in situations like that, it's where he does his best. Like throughout uh, this, these issues, I thought that um, seeing Richard from the perspective of the younger Nova Corpsman. Like, uh, you you really could feel how they look up to him in this way. Where And you, we and I remember when he was on Xandar, and it all blew up, and he was just, like, the, the first time experiencing anything like that. Yeah, he was so sad. Yeah. Such what a, a sad boy. What a cool arc to sell people on. Uh, but yeah. specifically, we are talking about Nova's numbers 26 to 28. These issues were written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, illustrated by Andrea DeVito, inked by Andrea DeVito, colored by Bruno Hang, and lettered by VCs Corey Petit. Um, were you as uh, enamored of these issues as I was, Elias? Yeah, I really, I really loved them. And I guess just to kind of establish for everyone, we're going to be talking about this not in the reading order that we've posted, uh, because it just doesn't make sense to be jumping around like we did last time uh, from issue to issue. It They work best as chunks, so we're going to be handling them as chunks, and hopefully that means the episode will be slightly shorter. <laughs> Who knows? We're, we're both very loquacious. I, well, I get enthusiastic when it comes to my Richard Ryder. So right when they, right they drop the title at the beginning of this, I was like, yeah, okay, when they call it uh, Saving Private Robbie. That was... Excellent. And gives us a clear, defining move forward. Ego has been defeated. That The whole world mind and Richard being on the outs with him were all settled. And now Richard can be Nova Prime again. And he can kind of be an inspiration to the rest of the Nova Corps while also kind of making sure that we aren't losing hundreds and hundreds of people to just indiscriminate slaughter because they're not prepared and they were essentially conscripted against their will. Yeah. And, uh, this, these issues get a little bit into the thorniness of that because that Mm -hmm. was like evil, corrupted world mind joined with ego. And now we got ourselves a new world mind. And this one is Corel. And it's got the personality of Corel, who is a character who we only knew, but briefly, but had like a really big impact on this story. And I actually kind of love this development. I mean, it's sad that Corel is dead, but she's not a real person. She is a fictional character. And it's cool that we have this new, like, complicated AI with an attitude. It's like, a good update for, for Worldmind. Yeah, it, you know, Worldmind's still doing the same Worldmind stuff, but now she says stuff like, uh, this is the planet where your psycho girlfriend murdered me. <laughs> Which is not something the old Worldmind would have said, necessarily. 
Nope. The old world mind probably would have been uh, a little bit more circumspect and then just yelled at Richard to get out of there because he wanted to be protected. Yeah. Um, it is critical that you pay attention at this time. Uh, this issue, despite having the best title of the bunch, um, you know, it takes a little while to get to get going proper. This is more of a, a bunch of vignettes of Nova Corpsmen on the front lines of the war. But there is mm-hmm. a pretty thrilling moment when um, Triton comes over the hill and they're all like, oh, shit, we're going to have to fight some serious inhumans. Yep. And then uh, Richard's just like, wait, 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 wait. Raven? Yeah, it's our, that you? our old pal Raven, who's got the coolest of all Cree names and a pretty cool look. The only good thing to come out of that Wraith miniseries. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, but Wraith has appeared in more issues. And I was like, yeah, but were they good issues? They were not. Um, yeah. But I um, I love that because there's been so many of these wars in such quick succession, people keep on ending up on opposite sides of them. But since they've all fought side by side, that's what keeps on um, bringing a stop to the fighting. Which is nice and very helpful because, you know, you don't want to be fighting all the time, especially with, you know, former allies. Yeah, and former allies that you actually liked, and not former allies like I don't know if you ended up paired with Annihilus or I don't know, for example, Ravenous. Right. So Ravenous comes back. Do you remember when Ravenous first showed up at the beginning of Annihilation, and I was asking you about him? This is all his. Mm-hmm. That was his first appearance. Like you've read every issue that Ravenous has ever appeared in. That's amazing, honestly. Right? Don't you feel like you've been with this guy since like the '60s? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he fits in so naturally in the uh, space Marvel villain landscape. And so he is currently the ruler of uh, Krelar, the old Kree capital, which has been ceded to the Annihilation Bugs. I love that the uh, consequences from that Annihilation War are still affecting conflicts now, even though they're not at the center of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, and so the bulk of this conflict happens when Robbie Ryder, Richard's baby bro, uh, comes to face-to-face with Ravenous and agrees to extract him as the uh, legitimate ruler according to galactic law of this planet because the Shi'ar are coming. Um, yeah. So and... originally, I actually thought that was Rob, uh, Richard. Yeah, I was confused too. I thought that the story was being told like not chronologically, cause... but when I went back, actually, it makes sense because Richard and Robbie don't have the same voice. Like, Robbie's no. a lot more like G-Wiz formal and Richard's a lot more <laughs> gruff. Yeah. He's also a little bit thinner on the page. Yeah, although uh, depending on we've switched artists so many times. I like Andrea Devito's art a lot, but um, it's just it's hard to get a consistent feel for some of the newer characters. Yeah, especially when they've got the big helmet and then all you see is white guy lips. Yeah, <laughs> very like shiny him, and this. Yeah, Robbie, Richard, um, whoever that she are that got captured. Uh, and we got teased with uh, Garth and Saul a few issues ago. Uh, th- they all look kind of the same. Yeah, yeah. Any of the white guy looking Nova Corps. I mean, it doesn't help that they, you know, all we can see of their body is just uh, their nose and mouth and jaw. And the rest is all chiseled superhero guy. Yeah. Um, but so, like, a lot of the action, quote unquote, for these issues involves uh, Robbie gets. Um, a Strontian, he, he uh, traps a Strontian. So, uh, I, Elias, I bet you actually uh, know quite a bit about the Strontians at this point, right? 
Yeah, because we, we had a few, you know, just general introductions because Gladiator is a Strontian. And then we had that one issue of Warriors where uh, we kind of learned about the Strontian race. But I thought it was kind of implied that he's the only one that survived. Well, they at one point there's uh, a... No. They have a throwaway line. They say that uh, actually two survived. She's the evil Supergirl to his evil Superman. Yeah. Yeah. But she enjoys what she does. Whereas he's like, this is all about duty. And she's like, I like murdering people. Yeah. She's actually, she's actually, uh, she's from an issue, a Mark Grunewald comic from the nineties called Star Masters was her first appearance. So is she really, she show up alongside the Star Jammers a lot? Um, I imagine that's where you would see her. Yeah, because she's like a. Yeah, if you're if you're in the Imperial Guard, you're chasing the Star Jammers. That's mostly what your yeah. job is in Marvel Comics. <laughs> um, and we saw her also a couple issues ago. Well, in Nova, uh, specifically when she brutally murders the entirety of Cohort eighty six, and we saw the Throne of Helmets earlier, and uh, Suki, who I. Uh, that's you... another another one on the pile. Yeah, you liked Suki too. I think you liked her more. I did. Th- I liked her too. She's she was a good one-off character. I really, it's a really un- unfortunate combination that um, comics of this era really like just like killing off female characters to motivate male characters, and then especially also new ones, especially new ones. And then Abnett Lanning are really good at establishing characterization in a couple of panels. So. Uh, yeah. They can make you care just enough to make it heartbreaking, and it, and it feels like worthwhile writing, even though you're like, yeah, but this is a pretty unfortunate pattern. Yeah, and it's not a pattern that's going to be going away by the end of this. No, sir. Um, nope. But so one of the weird quirks of the Strontians in Marvel is that uh, they have Superman-like powers. They're, like, super invincible, but their powers are tied to their confidence level. As long as they believe in themselves, they're powered up. But if they doubt that what they're doing is righteous, if they think that they're... um, If if they don't believe in themselves, then their power will start decreasing. And um, this particular Strontian is, like, a crazy zealot who loves Emperor Vulcan, and so it's taking all of Robbie's concentration just to, like, hold her there. And pretty much for the – he does this for, like, two consecutive issues. Yeah. But, and, I mean, the fact that he does it for two consecutive issues on, against an opponent this strong, that kind of sells – even though it's not exactly the most engaging thing to look at. Thankfully, Abner and Lanning don't force us to just sit there for 20 minutes of just watching him struggle. Well, I was going to say the opposite. I was going to say that um, it was really thrilling. I thought that they um, it was paced out nicely. Andrea DeVito really uh, sells you on uh, the strain, and he's like, nose is bleeding. They're trading barbs. It's like really cool showdown stuff. It's like um, – it's got like a Hannibal vibe where like it's just you and your enemy, and you're both mm-hmm. uh, at, a, at a stalemate, so you're, you're trying to look for an opening. Like I was really – I thought this was gripping stuff actually. I'm not saying that it wasn't gripping to watch and to read about, but I guess I meant having two issues worth. They made it, they made all the scenes that Robbie was in there worthwhile rather than selling the time without forcing us to sit there and like kind of experience it as a long time. And we cut away and just enough to, to get a rap, you know, to, to deal with that. Uh, and, good yeah. stuff 
Yeah, and I also, um, I remember I've been kind of tracking your relationship with Robbie for these issues, and uh, you've been liking him a little bit better, but I think he really shines here. I like that he's, um, he's just like a real uptight nerd who wants to make sure that, like, everyone's following the rules. He seems like he and Scott Summers would really get along, you know? Yeah, but Robbie's better. Than Scott Summers? Mm-hmm. Well, Robbie's never, like, cheated on, like, ten of his ex-wives, as far as I know. Yeah. With and like uh, with demon babies and I uh, I'm obviously fudging a little bit but you guys Cyclops has done some stuff, yeah. um, but that's what makes the cliffhanger at the end of Nova 27 for me I was like oh really where Strontian seems to have killed Robbie. Yeah, that's not. There's no way that was gonna happen. I mean, before we got there, though. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. We... Yeah, didn't mean to jump ahead too far. Well, it's because we were jumping around and talking about Robbie. But <laughs> in between the Robbie scenes, uh, we get some check-ins kind of on the developments of the war as it regards to Richard on this planet. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's Richard, Morrow, and what's her name? The the Rogelian. Um, I'm no good with Rogelian names. Um, is that I- Irani Rail? Yes, Irani Rail. They're running around on the planet trying to figure out... You know, where is Robbie? Because Robbie's been missing ever since he went to search for uh, Suki and and everyone uh, kind of go on his revenge quest. And he makes his way. They make their way to the planet. They're not sure that it's Robbie. They're kind of like, you know, Abner and Lanning are stringing us along a little bit, even though uh, we kind of we already saw Robbie on the planet. It actually I needed to reread this a couple times because I just I guess I wasn't paying close enough attention because I bought in I'm like maybe it's not Robbie but all the signs are like it's the planet he's on he's the only one around I thought it was going to be like a bait and switch where they show up and it was gonna they were gonna find the the Shi'ar guy who got you know spirited away a couple issues ago yeah, I also um, I thought there was going to be a bait and switch too, but it's actually very straightforward, yeah. which is kind of nice. So there's yeah. enough happening elsewise. Exactly, but they're there and they see these portals to the negative zone opening up, which, as we probably can figure out from the the Ascension books we read last time, as re- regards to whatever Darkhawk was doing, right? They're trying to trying to go there, and then they all get knocked out of the sky, and we get this bl- big splash page. Why don't you take it? I, I'm on the same page as you. No, you uh, you sell me on this page that has you so moved. <laughs> well, after they they get you know, shot out of the sky, Richard is on the ground. He looks up. And he's just like, "What hit us?" And they're there, along with a bunch of uh, weird of looking soldiers. Is your your man? King Blastar. Oh, man. So I, I was just holding back because I have a lot to say about King Blastar, especially in the next issue. But, like, woo, this is I. This is why I love Blastar. Blast, King Blastar, I apologize. Um, but just, like, my big space yeti with the explodey fists shows up. And just for the entirety of the next two issues, he has no backbone, no conviction. He just, like, wheedles his way into every conversation. Uh, when he comes up with about the slightest bit of resistance, he takes the laziest way out of everything, and he floats right to the top. I think Blastar is admirable, and we could all learn a lot from him. <laughs> but his first appearance of the issue is so imposing, and you, you really believe that he could be a threat, and he's kind of batting them around with the cosmic control rod. But then he's like, 
well, I guess you've got a brother. Fine, you can go. And then he turns to the, to the the rest of the the Imperial Guard and is like, "Well, you can chase after them too." I did. I only said that I wouldn't chase after him. Where he's like, "I am like, a great chump." Yeah, I am a gracious and worthy king. You can have a fifteen minute head start. I won't chase you. And then he's like, "Thanks." And then he turns to like his allies and he's like, "I didn't say you couldn't chase him for fifteen minutes. I'll I'll be I'll catch up with you." So now Blastar has. Uh, Nova thinks that uh, King Blastar is in his his corner. The Imperial Guard thinks Blastar is in his corner. And Blastar doesn't have to do anything. And everyone's just killing each other for his territory. This guy knows and how he, to live. He probably wouldn't have even sent them after if they hadn't been like, why did you just let him go? That's what I mean. Every time someone objects to him in the slightest, he's just like, okay, we'll do that then. I don't care. At the end of the day, I'm going to be king. And they're like, I guess so. I can't deny that. Blastar yep. knows what's up. Everyone else is caring about honor and duty and loyalty. And Blastar's just like, yo, did you see in issue number 28 he's got that big old yelling horn? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Nova is like, is like, world mind, put, amplify my voice. And then Blastar just pulls out this, like, giant creature's horn that looks like the, uh, I'm not, I, sometimes I forget my Lord of the Rings trivia. What's the horn that Gimli blows at uh, Helm's Deep? I don't know. I I've only read Fellowship, never seen the movies. Uh, I found it boring. Wow, a lot. We're gonna have to readdress this at some future date because I I just think I'm uh, sure the movies are much more exciting and engrossing. I just haven't watched them. Um. Well, yeah. Maybe this will be. Uh, if only we had a Patreon, then we could. Uh, have Elias do a commentary track for his first viewing of Fellowship. That sounds like a hell of a time. <laughs> um, Would and anyone it, enjoy that? Leave a comment. <laughs> I'd sure enjoy that. I can't speak for the the inter- wider internets. Um, but yeah, I just like Blaster's big old horn rules and um, and the the fight with the uh, with the Strontian is like uh, you it's know fine. It's a it, good. It's a good. It's a decent fight. Uh, when the the rest of the Imperial Guard shows up with the uncreated Pit Twenty and Zizix, I, I looked up Ziz, uh, Zizix because um, just that's not how I remember Zizix, and I don't remember him being a symbiote in the past. That's supposed to be freaking Raza Longknife. Yeah, well, yeah, because in the I think it was in Guardians thirteen, he gets taken over. By when they're when they're fighting, or maybe it was in the the stuff right before War of Kings, uh, he's taken over when they when they're with the Star Jammers, and they have to. Oh no, that was in Kingbreaker. I thought it might have been in Kingbreaker. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, that's why I remembered. That's why you remembered. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was just Raza Longknife is like a a classic version of a uh, member of the Star Jammers who I love. Yeah. And uh, here he was being a scary symbiote. I just like you know that's stupid and cool. I wrote in my yeah. notes here, and I'm gonna come back to this a bunch of times. Um. I didn't care about most of the people in that fight, like the random Nova Corps, and they're fine. And those Imperial Guard guys, they had goofy names, and I'm into that. But man, mm-hmm. da- uh, Abnett and Lenin can really just like script a big old punch him up. And I'm going to mention this a couple more times. But mm-hmm. I just, I, the rhythms and the scripting and the panel work, um, the, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it credit goes to the various artists they're working for but they're the consistent element in a lot of these issues where there are a ton of guys in the fight and they know exactly how quickly to parcel out each of the beats and which exchange of barbs and uh, should it be funny should it be tough um 
these reversals of fortune. It just it, it's real wrestling storytelling that they're excellent at, and I never get lost or bored in a way that I do with say um, a similar fight written by Brian Michael Bendis, who will do a lot of splash pages and just tell the artist, and then they all punch each other or whatever, and then the artist if they might write draw like a gorgeous uh, panorama of superheroes off lying around, but it never feels like a story in a way that these do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this isn't the best in the uh, of these issues, but I, I no, like. No, but there's and there's there are a lot of creative uses uses of powers, and you know uses of powers against oneself, uh, so that it feels like it's not just a bunch of similar but just different costumed people. Uh, like they all have their own gimmicks and their own quirks, and it all works. Yeah, they have to figure out like what each other's weaknesses are. Yeah, just it's this is um this is the minimum I expected my superhero writing, and it's crazy how rarely people rise to this standard. Yeah, but after we get the big punch him up, and you know the entire Imperial Guard is is defeated, that's when we get King Blastar and his horn a plenty, <laughs> a plenty of Blastar's yelly voice. Um, oh yeah, and so the uh, the end of this conflict ends up being this standoff where um. Blastar postures and Nova says we're gonna go, and um... and Rich is like I want a private audience. And in hushed tones, he's talking to Blastar and he's like, "All right, this is how it's gonna go. We want to leave. This is how you can save face. Uh, and also, I'm gonna do all the work here. All you have to do is accept." Well, I specifically like that uh, Rich is trying to get Ravenous out, and Blastar wants to execute or do whatever with ravenous um and uh and so he says and i got the cosmic control rod i could use that to to mess up your day <laughs> then rich's comeback is he's like remember the guy who had it before you how i turned him inside out because it was freaking annihilus and then blastar immediately was like oh no i did not remember i'm terribly sorry okay so how are we gonna like save my reputation and to blastar's amazing credit richard's like yes that's my new priority is saving your reputation even though you just uh threatened to kill me and then realized you couldn't and that's what the conflict is here just like i love this dude blastar knows exactly how far he can push people and um and richard also knows that (laughs) yeah and he knows richard's getting knows he's getting manipulated but he um he tells Blastar exactly what to say, and it ends with now Blastar is king of the entire negative zone and the king of Krelar. <laughs> he just keeps on worming his way into more and more places, and now Ravenous is a, a captive. Oh my god, yeah. Which it, Ravenous really hasn't had that much to do, uh, and I don't think he's going to have that much more to do. He's kind of just stuck there now. But I like that he's oh, wow. out there. I just, the Guardians could fight yeah. Ravenous again. Yeah, at some point. I think but... he should get like a Death Star or something. That would be pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, that that would be kind of fun. But after that, Richard and everyone they go back to New Xandar, you know, Sleepy Ego, and probably about ninety nine percent of the the core is gone. It's probably a good thing. But well, a few good... remain. Clarify, good because Richard let them go from the mind control, not because they all died in the war. Although quite a few of them died yes. in the war too. Yes, good because they were released back home safe and sound. Yeah, yeah, but it's I think it's the entirety of that original team, and then Trey and Lindy. Yeah, and I love this status quo for Nova. I feel like um, 
we started with this like very destructive beginning where the whole Nova Corps got wiped out, but now here we are and we're like rebuilding something. And I really feel like uh like Richards learned a lot and like we're going in a direction where there's gonna be this uh, cosmic force of peacekeeping and justice and order again, which I think is an interesting status quo. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's not one uh, meant to last because. <laughs> no. Uh, we're gonna get oh. Realm of Kings, and then uh, everything is gonna take a real sharp turn into into the movies coming out, and this whole... Bendis Town. And yeah, and then, and then we're taking a one way ticket straight to Bendis Town. We, we rag on Bendis a lot, but he has a lot of good stuff. He's I just also very emblematic of a specific era of Marvel. It is my fervent wish to one day write the unauthorized biography of Brian Michael Bendis. I think he's one of the most interesting creators in the history of comics. But uh, his Guardians run, if you're a fan of the comics we're reading right now, his Guardians run is uh, might not be for you. wasn't for me. Unfortunate. Uh, oh, also Wendell Vaughn is here as a ghost because why not? Sure, as like a supporting character or whatever. But I just I think this is all great. I'm really excited for Richard in this new leadership position. He, um, and I like... Him, and uh, as we'll get to in a moment, at the end of uh, War of Kings, there's like a pretty scary new status quo. We're going to need some um, some order. I also um, – mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I uh, am ethically uh, being very thoughtful about uh, the idea of having like a space cop force. I just think for storytelling reasons, it's good to have a status quo um, to bounce mm-hmm. off of because if everything's always chaos, it's, it's like hard to sell the stakes of this fantastical world. And so the idea that the Nova Corps is part of the Galactic Order and Richard's building it to be a good one, I think, has dramatic tension because we know how these organizations can become, like, corrupt. That's kind of a big theme in War of Kings, actually, with all the other warrior orders. Yeah. And so seeing... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, the way Richard has been doing it, for the most part, has been more along the lines of, like, an emergency medical team. Or like a like a FEMA, they go in. He goes in. He he tries to save as many people as he can and stop like natural disasters. And that's kind of what we started as. Now that they're rebuilding the core, it's becoming less like that. Which is which is unfortunate because I think that could, could have been a really interesting status quo of them shifting from, you know, this straight up we're going to arrest people and throw them in the kiln to, you know, how do we save and protect as many people as possible? Yeah. You're but totally you right. Deal with people like ravenous. And it's like, well, what do you do? Well, and like, uh, there's plenty of room for them to stop like rampaging space worms and like weird soul demons. Like there's still <laughs> evil lurking out in the galaxy. Cause it's a superhero universe. Yeah. But, um, I agree with you. I think that, that there would have been a great opportunity to explore themes like that. If, we got another 30 issues of Nova. And it's crazy. We've gotten almost 30 issues of this ongoing. And in the 2000s. Yeah, that's just a, that was not common. No. But the the issue kind of ends with them... Well, there are a few scenes beforehand. We get some, some good conversations between Richard and, and Wendell and Richard and uh, Corell. Uh, we find out that Ego is starting to awaken again because... Of course he is. So they have to find another, a new, new Xandar. Uh, I guess soon we're going to have new, 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 new Xandar. Yeah, that sounds right. I'm pretty sure that's canon. <laughs> uh, and we get a, a good conversation between Robbie and, and Richard. Robbie's in his tube of healing. He's in the Vegeta tube. He literally calls it a Bacta tank, and he's right. <laughs> yeah. 
And Robbie is now going to officially join the Corps, which is a very a, a change of heart on Richard's part and kind of shows his growth as a brother and also as someone who, you know, is willing to rebuild the Nova Corps. I'm glad this was where he ended up. I think this is where he should have ended up at here, but maybe like six issues earlier. Yeah, they didn't sell the uh, the ju- the beginning of the conflict wasn't very good, but in hindsight, it feels very earned because I think of the strength of these three mm-hmm. issues. Yeah, I, gu- I guess I mean I, it just took a lot of issues to get to this point. Yeah, and there were a lot of secret invasion stuff. I think that's really what did it. It it's yeah unbelievable how weak secret the weaknesses of secret invasion brought down the strengths of War of Kings because Robbie's heroism feels so earned here. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, they really make it clear that him uh, going toe-to-toe with the Strontian is like he did it in his own way and uh, no one else might have necessarily survived that encounter. Yeah. I think that rules. Great. But we uh, end we end with the, the aftermath of War of Kings, essentially. There's this giant rift in space, and we'll touch on that later. Yeah. But coming out of the rift is an old Nova Corps starship. Oh dun, right, dun, dun. and that what a what a groovy ending, right? Like uh, now we're doing like temporal, cross-dimensional, weird Nova Core legend stuff. I'm into it. Yeah, it's gonna be great. Um, but meanwhile, elsewhere in the conflict, uh, do you want to jump over to what's plaguing your favorite boy, Chris Powell? Yeah, but I th- should we. I need to look at my notes. <laughs> I'm like, should we do War of Kings 4 first or Ascension first? Well, we can mix them together because War of Kings 4 and the t- the two issues of Ascension are um are very much tied in together. Oh, like it's yeah. they surround pretty much the same event cuz we start off with um well, I guess we should first introduce um I just want to credit our creators here. War of Kings Ascension is a uh, like two little two-part uh, mini series, but it's pretty oh. essential. Yeah, a four-part. We're in the second half. Oh, that's right. We started this uh, last episode. So we're in the second yeah. half of a four-issue miniseries, but it's pretty essential to understanding a lot of the important motivations and big moments in War of Kings. Ascension is written by Avnet and Lanning with art by Wellington Alves, inked by Scott Hanna and Nelson Pereira, colored by Guru FX, and lettered by VCs Corey Petit. And we're going to be talking a lot about uh, the War of Kings series, which was written by Dan Abnett and Annie Lanning, illustrated by Paul Pelletier and Bong Dezo, uh, inked by Rick Magyar and Andrew Hennessy with Joe Pimentel, colored by Will Quintano and Guru FX with Mike Kelleher, and lettered by VCs Joe Caramanga. A lot of credits. Darkhawk, though, is... Darkhawk. Uh, ...is following uh, Talon. So he found out that, that like, a... Uh, being a dark hawk is a Shi'ar thing, and that there's these like cool order of assassins, like in Assassin's Creed, and they have been like influencing Shi'ar politics from the shadows for a long, long time. And now he's got like a creepy mentor, and this goes right into like your favorite kind of freaky sci-fi horror stuff, right? Yeah, and also clearly the this order has been pretty evil for most of its existence, uh, or maybe. Evil is the wrong word. Regressive. Regressive and authoritarian. Because they're very... I don't know what is it with all of these space empires, but they're very, very eugenics-y. They're like, there is only the good pe- the, the good race, and we have to, you know, have the one track. I mean, they call him Darkhawk, though. He's not like they call him Nicehawk. 
Yeah, but it's not Darkhawk that was evil. That's the no, name no. he gave himself. Right, right, because his adventures are so dark, I mean. Like, of course oh. it's going to turn out that his amulet is connected. His amulet was never going to be connected to a nice order. He's Darkhawk. That's, that's true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and I love how, I still love how the name is Razor. Razor and Talon. And then later it turns out that they have, like, alien names, and his name is, like, uh, Talonis. And he's like, but you can call me Talon. And it's like, okay, buddy, let's relax here. All right, let, let's uh, let's step back from all that that grim dark, just a little bit. Yeah, a dark hawk has a lot of a lot of uh, fun times. Um, at, uh, Ridgemont well, High. Well, I like a. So he's uh, we let we last saw him on a demon tree that was filled with bats, and he was covered in like really freaky arcane scars and tattoos, which I thought was a cool ass design. And a bunch of like uh gems just hanging off him. He he looks like he fell into a Lamentous configuration. Ooh, that sounds fancy. He's, uh... He fell he fell into hell in the Hellraiser series. Oh, yeah. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shades of Hellraiser. Something I know only by reputation and have not seen myself. Um... But, like, he's got these weird spikes stuck through him. He's jumping off the branches. And when he lands on these those big crystals that are, like, floating like little fruits on the tree, they all have the corpse of a former Darkhawk in them or a former uh, Talon. Or uh, with the former hosts of one of the – yeah, one of the Darkhawks because they were the Order of the Darkhawks. I think that's what they were. Yeah. Um, and but meanwhile – mm-hmm. Just while he's stuck in this universe, his body is running around with uh, with one of the the Talon guys, with Razor. Uh, yeah, and this is the scene where, you know, they they basically beat up Blastar, and he has another one of his, well, all right, I'll just kind of go with the flow moments. Because <laughs> uh, he's got the cosmic control rod, and he's like, I'm all powerful now. And Talon's like, Haha, you think we wouldn't put a fail safe when giving this to you? Yoink! takes it back uh blastar is like all right fine i'll do what you want even though what he wanted was probably he should have just gone with it a lot, the whole time because it's you know it was a good deal i mean blastar is good at many things but impulse control isn't one of them no he, he was like it, it hurt his pride without realizing it um but so uh i i mean i guess so the story of this is that um Chris is fighting through like this demon tree to get to master his power and to get his body back. While meanwhile, uh, these two dark hawks are doing evil Shi'ar bidding. And when Chris finally like comes to and gets his body back, he finds himself standing in this chaotic scene. And he's like, "Where am I? What am I doing?" And uh, he's standing above the corpse of the Empress Lilandra Niramani. Yep, which is a big old pile of whoops. Um, Just a it, little bit. What's, what I found very interesting, though, was the conversation he has with the host of Darkhawk. Or not Darkhawk, Talon, who is kind of dying inside of the crystal. His name is... Uh, Hood, where is it? Where is his name? Got some weird alien name. Hidjke uh, Jakku. Of course. Of course. You know, it just rolls off the tongue. But he, he he's stuck in there. But... He's the one who tells Darkhawk, he's like, or he tells Chris, he's like, you're special. You're not, like, sure, you're not compatible with it, but that's a good thing. They're not used to your, uh, basically your rugged individualism. 
Sure. <laughs> that's that's a, a little bit underneath that. But more so because they're not compatible because it wasn't built for humans. It was built for, you know, 20,000 years beforehand. He's able to bring out more of what's in it, and he's able to resist the impulses of, you know, the order itself. He's able to essentially transform what it is. He just had no idea how to use it because he got so stuck in his head with all the anger management stuff. And what a cool new status quo that would have been if there was a spin-off Darkhawk series and he was kind of like a dark parallel to Richard's journey where he's right. learning about all the bad stuff and like the the creepy magical stuff in his uh, his destiny and he he's like running away from it and trying to redeem it. I feel like there's a a, a great I it's again, it's too bad that the movie was so popular and we didn't get to take this all the way cuz I love this. Yeah, it was great. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and the other interesting part of his status quo is now he is wanted for, like, major regicide. Lilandra is, like, a huge Marvel character, first appearing in the uh, in the Phoenix Saga, uh, in Claremont's X-Men, back mm-hmm. in 1976. Um, she appeared in an X-Men issue when they still had uh, double digits in the numbering, you know? Damn. And I like, didn't expect... I didn't expect her to actually be dead. I thought there was going to be a bait and switch. Yeah, but there is not. And uh, cr- and it's interesting. Like, Chris's body definitely killed her. And maybe he's not culpable. Like, maybe we can uh, – maybe that's something we can talk about. But, like, uh, there – Like, maybe uh, he could go on trial and be like, I wasn't in control of my body. I was banished to a demon tree. And, th- and maybe in galactic law there's a, uh, a statute for that. Gotcha. But, yeah. But in the meantime, like, they're not wrong for wanting to catch him. It All evidence does point to him doing the murder. Well, yeah, they, they saw him. He was under, you know, whatever it was called, under cloak. And it was his gun that, that did it. His, you know, magic space laser. Yeah. And uh, we can see how devastated Gladiator is by Lelandra's death. And I feel like that's a great setup, too, of the eventual uh, showdown between Gladiator and Darkhawk. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. also – I always find a lot of the Shi'ar stuff is cool. Like it's got cool designs or they have cool powers or whatever. But uh, isn't very emotionally resonant to me. Yeah. They don't have a lot of great relationships with other characters. Like, okay, so Gladiator has spent most of his time in X-Men comics. What's his relationship with, with Cyclops? What's his relationship with Storm? And none of those are very interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like begrudging tough guy respect. Uh, but now like he's his, his modus operandi. Yeah, and I always find him to be kind of a weak character most of the time for that. But this is cool. This is new. Now he's got like a real vengeance, and he, uh, he, it's not. It's always business with him, but now it's personal with Darkhawk. Yeah. Um, and pretty th- rad. Yeah, and again, the artwork really sells that with uh, his internal strife. Um. Meanwhile, just like around. Uh, meanwhile, in another dimension. Well, not in another dimension, because that's going to be a, a real consideration and not too far. Um, I guess we should check in a little bit with uh, Emperor Vulcan. So I've decided whether or not erroneously or correctly, Elias, do you love space despots? I feel like you do. Mm, sometimes. I don't like this space despot. Well, so this is like a subpar space despot, and that's kind of what makes him delicious, is after seeing all these, like, high-functioning warlords, Vulcan is such a twerp. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, it, 
it's so interesting that kind of at the core of War of Kings is this like big class battle between royalty. Like it's not just Vulcan is evil, but there's all of these undertones of like you've got new money and old money basically. Like the, yeah, the, totally. The inhuman royalties, they are old they're old royalty. They they've been doing this for centuries. And Vulcan is new. He's a he's an upstart. And Ronan kind of was also an upstart, but he, he was a reluctant one. That's why he kind of it was like, you guys handle it. I don't want to deal with this. Well, and, and from Kingbreaker, you have all this background where you find out that Vulcan had this brutal childhood in the Shi'ar slave pits and watched his mother die. And it's just like yeah. all sorts of dark, twisted stuff or whatever. But I like uh, that Vulcan is the classic character of like crazy, powerful powers, but not a lot of maturity. All the yeah. power, none of the responsibility. And he's the emperor, so... And he can do whatever he wants. Well, so legally, of. he's got a lot of responsibility, but he's not hes not upholding it. Um, no. No, he's but not. But I'm much more interested in um, in the relationship mm-hmm. between uh, Ronan and Crystal. Yeah, that's excellent stuff. I love all of their conversations. <laughs> it's It's so nice to have just things slow down and to have them just talking about it. I'm kind of talking about like what is the ultimate, you know, what like what not what's the point, but kind of what are we supposed to do now? Like what what is what is the correct course of action going forward, and not just accept whatever Black Bolt says or you know what Medusa says via Black Bolt or Black Bolt via Medusa. Well, it's nice because Ronan hasn't had a real foil like this before. We see we've seen Ronan constantly be having these existential crises about knowing what the right thing to do is. Mm-hmm. But no one ever wants to talk to talk him through it. He's just like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing, and then everyone's like, Ah, you'll figure it out, buddy, and then they just fuck off. <laughs> and now he's got Crystal, who's like uh, trying really hard to make the, this marriage work, and she is uh, talking it out with him and asking him good questions, and um, and it turns out that both of them like really share a lot of values and morality and i like that um their love story is one of people who realize that they like believe in the same stuff i feel like you normally don't see that in a love like that's not uh, portrayed as romantic just like yeah. sharing political beliefs but it is here and one of the interesting things about ronin is that he he still is like you get the warriorness of him and he's like why isn't black bolt being more ruthless in his actions and Crystal's like, well, because, you know, he'd like to not kill a lot of people. And Ronan's like, all right, fine. But did he give it to the right the right guys? Because the Starjammers, can you really trust them? Right, not trust as in, as in, like, they will betray us, but trust as in they will get the job done. Well, they're, they're like pirates and thieves, and Ronan is so into, like, uh, established uh, hierarchies and stuff. Yeah. Order. Uh, yeah, and, and Crystal's much more of a – she's got like a bit of more of a renegade spirit. But like um, they really sell it on Ronan's recovering in this like hover wheelchair and Crystal taking him down to the beach. I just – um, so they're, they're jumping ahead, their marriage lasts uh, a, a bit of a while. Mm-hmm. But then during Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four run, he wanted to make Ronan back with the accusers and the Kree and everything. Mm-hmm. 
So he tears them apart, but but props to Hickman. He makes their the end of their marriage the saddest thing because neither of them want the marriage to end, but they both understand the the political necessity of it. Oh. Yeah, and it is heartbreaking. And I want to compare that favorably to all this Bendis complaining I'm doing because with Bendis, he just drops all these stories. He just uh, – when he wants Mantis or whatever, he just grabs Mantis. doesn't matter where she was last seen or what she was doing or what she cared about. She's just like a new character now. Mm-hmm. And I love that Hickman wanted to get Ronan somewhere, but he knew that uh, his marriage to Crystal was in the way, so he makes that a really emotional story beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's unfortunate to be able to – and I have a lot more to say about Crystal as she's one of the main characters of War of Kings. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time Crystal's characterization has ever interested me, and it's sad that it, they didn't pick her up after this. When they do the Big Inhumans initiative a couple years later, she's the farthest from the spotlight of the royal family. Yeah, I mean, I forgot that she was even there. I didn't even know. Like, she's not one of the ones that gets a big push. It sucks. But yeah. Other than her, after she has her, her big conversation, we cut back to uh, Guardian and, and actually the the push that they were talking about, which is Guardian and, and the Star Jammers uh, escorting Lalandra into the council chambers to basically be like, Here's your true empress. Please follow her and not anyone else. And uh, em- and Chancellor Araki, who is basically Palpatine, only more inept. And uh, this was pr- no, this was after the after the prequels, right? Yeah, we're up to two thousand nine. Right around there. No, episode three is already out. Okay. Yeah, we're like five so five th- years removed. Because this 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 whole council chamber scene and all that it smacked of of Palpatine in the in the Senate chamber and uh, all I'm, of that. I'm glad you made that comparison because I made a similar comparison in my notes. But I actually think that um, this comic doesn't do as good a job of the prequels. I found that the art kind of lets the scene down where uh, it's too tight. Mm-hmm. You like never get yeah. the scale of the crowd. The one crowd shot is like this very long, uh, tall, thin panel. That doesn't really uh, sell you on the scale of it, and you never get a great establishing shot of the whole room, so you don't know the size or the shape of it. Whereas in Star Wars, it's like this orb with all these like neat lines that looks really—it's uh, striking, even though it's not creative. And, and then, um, and we haven't had any of this kind of political stuff in War of Kings. It's all been well, Vulcan wants to do it. We're just gonna follow Vulcan as he impulsively fucks off around the galaxy. But, and everyone's just scared to say no to him because he's yeah. got such big energy powers. But it seems like here they were actually trying to convince the council. I understand this beat, this whole thing. It really did feel like it, it was out of place, unfortunately. I think the writing does an adequate job, but it's the art that really lets it down. Part of it is also uh, Lilandra looks so silly in her like Shi'ar condom head <laughs> helmet thing. <laughs> That's holding in her feathers. I know this is based on her classic look from old uh, John Byrne X-Men art, but it's just, like, not working here. Uh, her facial expression. exclamation point boob window. Yeah, and that's not very regal looking. She just looks angry and not triumphant when she's seizing the power. Like, I think this is a good scene, and I think that the art is just, like, really uh, misguided. Even It's not, like, ugly art. It's just not selling what it needs to for this specific mm-hmm. scene. Yeah, because Pelletier has been doing a really good job of, you know, just being a, a an artist here. I really like his art throughout War of Kings. It 
it's nice to one have a consistent artist and two have one that has an a uh, uh, house style that feels really solid yeah solid house style is uh good it reminds me a lot of like brian hitch or yeah. um with maybe a little bit of olivier Coipel in terms of like design and uh and uh, the flow of action and stuff mm-hmm. um Something I just, as a as the resident ex-nerd, uh, have to get excited about is there is a beat here where Rachel Gray identifies uh, Chancellor Araki as the guy who killed her family. I thought she was identifying those the creatures that were attacking. Yeah, um, well, they, they she yeah. saw them. That's uh, Araki's like personal goon squad. Oh, okay. And um, what she's referring to a really strange uh, story written by Chris Claremont when he returned to X-Men in the early 2000s called End of Greys. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, such a wild story. I reread it recently, and I think it's really well done, but it's so of its time. It's just like brutal murders. It's just aliens killing a nice American family at a barbecue. <laughs> it's a like a, it's like a slide, and it's all of the Greys. It's Jean Grey's co- grandparents and cousins, oh, no. and her sister with her sister's little kids, and they all get murdered by by we find out Chancellor Araki's hit squad. And while, and the thing with End of Greys is it's like it, it's such a nasty story. I don't like reading it, but damn if it's not the some of the strongest issues I think Claremont wrote in that return run like the comic it's good comics he does mm-hmm. a bunch of interesting stuff with time compression and uh, he freezes these awful moments and stretches the seconds out for pages um really interesting writing really unpleasant to read and picking up on it here definitely feels like it's moving the story forward in a way that i appreciate i had no i had no concept of any of that other than her freaking out i'm like okay i guess we're doing this now <laughs> Yeah, uh, that it's was part like of... it was a good moment to just be like, oh, I guess that's you know resolving this this section. Well, I guess the lesson is uh, if you're reading a big shared superhero universe, sometimes the hero is going to yell, "That's the man that killed my family," and you'll say, "Sure, I believe you." <laughs> sure, okay, we'll see if how say... this goes. Yeah, if you say so. Yeah, and then we get another a nice big punch him up. Everyone's attacking. Iraqi's just being the worst. He's like, kill her, find the false empress, and kill her. (laughs) I'm telling you, man, you love a good galactic despot. I I guess I do. I like like kind of the connivers. I like the connivers. I don't like the ones who stroll in, punch and kill a bunch of people, and then they're like, I'm king now, sits on the throne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to be clear, I'm not saying you're uh, endorsing his uh, very eugenics-y uh, ethos. I just, uh, you like his style. You just, if you could wear big robes and tell people, find her, kill her, you wouldn't hesitate. Well. Well. You'd find someone worth finding and killing, I'm sure. They all, <laughs> they always do. They always um, do. But anyway, the chaos, the chaos of this issue ends linking us up to the Darkhawk side of things. And what I like is, um, do we ever clearly... Yeah, Darkhawk, we uh, we see Vulcan send him, but we never actually see the assassination occur. It's just like chaos, chaos, chaos. Lulandra is dead and Gladiator is crying. Yeah. I think I think that may have been because Ascension 3 was published after War of Kings 4. I think uh, the the big moment happened here, and then Ascension's like, "Well, how did we get here?" Yeah, uh, I, I like, actually because yeah, because he, he wakes up because it's focused on the gem side of everything, right? Um, but I so in terms of the reading order, I really like the way these two issues link up. Uh, mm-hmm. Seeing 
uh, Chris's confusion at being used in the assassination, and then seeing how chaotic the assassination was from the perspective of everyone else. Yeah. Um, it's exactly. good stuff, and it's a great turning point in the middle of the story because now Lilandra's dead, and Vulcan has no more opposition. It seems like he cannot be stopped. Uh, is that the case? Well, we'll find out. Hello, podcast listeners. We're the hosts of the DC3 cast. I'm Zach. I'm Vince. And I'm Brian. Each week, we discuss most of the new releases from DC Comics, focusing mainly on Rebirth, Wildstorm, and Young Animal. We also look at the news of the week, discuss the film and television adaptations of DC material, and dig into industry rumors. We've also had a number of DC creators on our show, like Scott Snyder, Jim Lee, Christopher Priest, Steve Orlando, and Joshua Williamson. So, if you like Borat jokes, my no wife, bad Dendidio impressions, this is bad, what the f***, and an in-depth look at DC each week, join us every Wednesday morning at multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. Come get Jurgens with us and welcome back uh i am so excited to talk about this next uh, set of issues with my good pal elias we are going to be talking about guardians of the galaxy number 14 to 19 written by dan abnett and andy lanning illustrated by brad walker and wesley craig inked by victor olazaba uh, uh live say scott Hanna and wesley craig Colored by Will Quintana, J. David Ramos, and Nathan Fairbairn, and lettered by VCs Joe Caramanga and Chris Eliopoulos. Um, oh, I, lo- I love some good Chris Eliopoulos lettering. Me too. Chris Eliopoulos is a pro. I also, um, Brad Walker used to shop at my comic store around the time these issues were coming out, and I remember getting very excited to talk to him about, oh my god, what's going on in Guardians? And he was just like, yeah, they're cool. Like, Brad Walker's a very laid-back guy. He likes drawing pictures for a living. Um, (laughs) And I never got the sense that he was, like, totally uh, a big... uh, dedicated sci-fi nerd. But man, he... uh, his art style sure is distinct. Oh, yeah. It is. And, I mean, so is Wes Craig's. So... I was confused at first when I saw the credits. I'm like, is Wesley Craig the same as Wes Craig? The answer is yes. This is yes, 10 absolutely. years before uh, Deadly Class. And you can see the artist that he grows into uh, from here to there. He has definitely grown as an artist. But his stuff here is still pretty good. Uh, and I guess before we get into this, just to address if anyone was reading along, is like, why aren't we talking about the end of Darkhawk? Well, the end of Darkhawk is basically just... The resolution of him and Talon's fight. You get a noble sacrifice and he flies off. And most of the rest of the important stuff is handled in War of Kings number five, which we'll get to. Yeah. Well, first, let's just. Uh, so, Guardians of the Galaxy number 14 squarely happens earlier in the conflict. I mean, earlier is a funny word because. Yeah. I, it, I mean, it directly follows on what was happening in 13 and. On both sides, we've got Warlock fighting Vulcan, and then we've got the diplomatic mission uh, with uh, the Inhuman Royalty, and the Inhuman Royalty continues to suck. Um, Does continue to suck. So I thought um, this Warlock not poorly written. Whole... I just think they're all wouldn't want to. Ha- yeah, wouldn't invite them over to for dinner. Yeah. Um. So I think that uh, right at the beginning of this, so they've done a great job. Like Vulcan is scary. They've like sold me on Vulcan being a scary dude and having Adam Warlock kind of go toe to toe with him and hold his own really sold me on Adam Warlock's power and importance more than almost anything has, which is great because it's almost too late. It's really important that they, they sell it now. Yeah. Yeah. And he's battling Vulcan and then he starts to turn purple. 
Yeah, so were you confused? But I don't know how familiar you are with uh, some of Warlock's strange predilections. No. So I saw this and went, oh, that's deliberate. This wasn't a, oh, the lighting is weird and he's supposed to look drained. And I'm like, no, this is this seems very, very deliberate, especially with the, the red. I mean, his costumes always looked red like this. But um, I, as I have been wondering with bated breath through this entire thing about secret second cocoon and whether or not it's going to be uh the magus or not this he looks just like the magus i'm like what's going on why is he looking like this has he secretly been the magus the whole time um and he's pretending to be warlock or he was brainwashed and that warlock is actually in the second cocoon with the universal church of truth i was that was all i could obsess with at this part because the fight's fine, uh, but watching Vulcan get his clock cleaned was was nice. Yeah, I mean, and as you'll we'll talk about uh, pretty soon, you're pretty much right. But uh, the the way it happens, I found pretty delightful. Oh yeah, on well, we'll get to there in a while. The other side of things, um, I was really disappointed with uh, Phyla. Uh, I just like I. Yeah. I didn't think so. I I get that Phyla made like a dark deal, and she's like a little bit uh, darker in costume and look and attitude. I buy all that, and but the the story didn't really sell me on what she did was incredibly stupid. It never pays off. She just like ruins everybody else's plans by taking Crystal hostage. She says like now we have leverage or something, but that never really p- cashes out. So it's just. Phyla, like, ruining everybody else's day and never has anything to show for it. And the story is, like, yeah. not that interested in filing, following up with her. So she ends up just looking like a chump for this entire arc, where every time everyone does something, she's, like, a little bit too bloodthirsty. But, like, when not Drax is bloodthirsty. Blood... Yeah, it, just, yeah, well, just uh, brutal and willing to do what it takes. But, like, when Drax and Gamora do stuff like that, usually then... They get results, and everyone says, "I didn't like how you did that, but I guess you did it the your, your own way." But with Phyla, everyone's just like, "Phyla, what are you doing? You're just kidnapping random girls." It's like read the room. It's as if when she made this deal with with Oblivion, that you know she just lost all her brain cells, like all of her her any any idea that actions have consequences just gone she's like well yeah i'll do this now yeah i don't don't understand the personality shift like why that is what uh the abnon landing chose to represent phyla being evil now or the avatar of death i guess yeah they 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 talk about the avatar of death stuff but they never sell you on it there's never a scene where you you see a difference or she's conflicted or anything like that just like all of us like she she was very callous when killing someone like that's what i would expect from an avatar of death it's like like someone dies like someone important dies and she doesn't feel anything and her quote-unquote evil is so low rent like i feel like if (laughs) Right, I feel like she's like a like a C-list daredevil villain, like Shotgun or the Matador or something. She's Oof. like not even cool, like uh, like Kingpin would never be a chump like this, right? And like not yeah. even Doctor Octopus would be a chump like this. Just in the scheme of you're losing your mind and turning to villainy, Phyla is doing an awful job. Yeah, so they end up ki- kidnapping Crystal. Uh, at, well, they try to escape, and then Phyla kidnaps Crystal, and and. Quill's like, what the hell are you doing? And then Warlock teleports in 
and so does the entirety of the Imperial Guard and the Inhuman Royal Family. And so the battle is joined on Nowhere. And what I love about this is I feel like um, superhero misunderstanding hero versus hero fights are a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. But what I like about this one is the Guardians end up pissing up two groups who uh, then come to fight the Guardians and then instead decide they want to fight each other. Like, I feel like that's a fun twist on the formula. Yeah, especially because they're already at war with each other. And yeah, like, well, mm-hmm. they've been like they've been like looking with each other. Right. And like uh, seeking each other out to get into this fight. And then they're like, ah, I guess I'll do this side fight. And then they find the fight they were looking for all along. I just thought that was all fun. Yeah. And and then they just leave. Uh, once once Crystal is is you know back with the the Inhumans, they leave, and then the Shi'ar are like, "Well, I guess the the battle's over now." Bye. Yeah, that felt pretty um pretty paint by numbers. Like they were just checking the box of uh, okay, we need an action beat here. Um, but that being said, um, the testimonials do so much for this comic, and it's crazy that that's not a thing in the in the movies and the future comics. Like, mm-hmm. every time we have a Guardians issue, even though the artwork might be similar and it might be similar events happening or even the same scene from a different perspective, the second you start having the testimonials, you know exactly what you're reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it, it's a framing device that they've gotten a lot of use out of in it, and I think that's great. Um, at one point, Rocket Raccoon calls Mentor Brainiac. He gets five comedy points. That's a really funny joke. <laughs> Only five? Yeah, it was a pretty funny joke. Pretty funny. Uh, uh, Moondra, af- well, technically, once the fight is over, the Shi'ar don't leave. They're like, we still want to kill Warlock. So they're, they're like, you know what? We'll capture Nowhere, too. And everyone's like, oh, great. Now we have to defend Nowhere again. Yeah, Guardians are not the best tenants. No. Moon Dragon is dragged into the you know, the bowels of the ship in order to release uh Starhawk. Warlock continues to fight. His face turns turns purple again and he looks positively terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and I I really liked this like the horror bits of of nowhere, like really selling how creepy it is and, and putting the horror alongside the sci-fi. Yeah. Good stuff. In the movie, they make nowhere really just seem like a very purple version of most Eisley. Mm hmm. But every day in the comics, nowhere, there's all these spooky chained up areas with like all sorts of Lovecraftian demon stuff like a note. And uh, that ends up being great foreshadowing to how it ties into all the venom stuff later, which also likes to go in a horror direction. Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, and uh, again, uh, this is one of the places where Abnett Lanning's uh, skill at writing a big superhero punch em up like really comes in handy. Uh, everybody, when they're facing their various opponents, um, just like like Rocket versus Mentor ends up being really exciting. When Groot's just like mowing guys down, you're like, oh yeah, only Groot could do that. <laughs> um, Major victory showing up, beating up on people. We get Drax to do some destroying. Been so yeah, it's long. been a little while. It's been a minute since Drax got into this or anything. But okay, so um, but the big superhero punch him up kind of ends with the startling moment of nowhere. The big head that they're all in wakes up and starts yelling stuff about Adam Warlock. Um, yeah. Now I want to talk in great depth about what they do with Adam Warlock, but can we please finish up War of Kings first, and then we'll do these final issues of Guardians? Certainly. Yeah. 
And I mean, in that issue of, of Guardians, we kind of reached where Lalandra had been killed and the rest of uh, and half of the Guardians kind of disappeared with Starhawk mid-battle. Back at War of Kings, uh, we have had... What have we had? We're now at issue five of War of Kings. Yeah, we're at uh, War of Kings number five, and everybody is, like, mad right now. Uh, the bad guys can't play nice with each other because uh, Vulcan just keeps on killing his lieutenants, and this turns out is not a great way to run things. No. And the Inhumans are... Uh, they've been... This isn't like a surprise or a twist, but we finally get the details that they are planning on launching what they call the Terrigen Bomb, which Crystal makes pretty clear is like a blasphemy to do something like this. They're taking the holy inhuman practice of Terrigenesis and they're like corrupting it by making it real shitty. Yeah, and it's just... I just... It's so stupid. <laughs> the whole well, The whole thing... Well, so their evil plan, or their 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 yeah. mad plan is, uh, terrigenesis is what gives the Inhumans their powers, and they're like, if we make every person in the galaxy an Inhuman, there will be no more racial conflict, and that's so bonkers that I kind of dig it. It's yeah, and it really is in line with Kree and Inhuman stuff. It's just. It, it leaves a, a sour taste in my mouth to see them it, to see them kind of like wholeheartedly go through it and the only the only bit of uh well maybe this isn't such a good idea it comes from crystal and black bolt like looking away sadly when they're doing it but medusa's like yeah kill them all i don't care blow up the bomb yeah i mean while I'm enjoying the Inhumans and, like, reading stories about their uh, moral struggles, this is a group of people that has been, like, pretty into slavery since they first appeared in the 60s. Yeah. In fact, Ronan calls them out on it, and he's just like, your plan won't work on the Kree. We're going to become slaves of the galaxy. And then Medusa's like, we'll work really hard to make sure that doesn't happen. Wink. Yeah. She, she really does not care about anyone and anything, and... It kind of shows through, and I think that was on purpose uh, to show the entire Inhuman royal family is detached and disconnected from everyone. Like they are the good side, but they really aren't good. The people that we're rooting for are Nova and the Guardians and like the the people on the ground. Well, and I guess Crystal and Ronan come out looking pretty good. Like yeah. uh, they really make you question the corruption of power for these people. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have in my notes for when Medusa's to, uh, kind of addressing them about the plan. I'm like, I speak for Black Bolt. I speak for the trees. <laughs> I love it when Medusa speaks for Black Bolt. She should also speak for the trees. Put her on Krakoa. She wouldn't yeah. last a minute on Krakoa. And at some point, you know, they they launch it. The bomb goes off. And then Maximus kind of drops the, I guess, a bombshell. That, oh, yeah, Black Bolt is also on, on the T-bomb. And Medusa freaks out. He's like, what do you mean he's on there? And Max is like, well, you know, his voice powers it. He's got to be there. And Medusa's like, what? We can't launch it anymore. Black Bolt will die. And I'm like, how did you not figure that out? I And I wrote in my notes, no conviction. I mean, even if she didn't figure it out because she's like a girl and bad at math or whatever they're trying to say by that. That um, just like the fact that she was willing to do some war crimes a second ago and she's like, oh, but my husband will die. That's like worse than any war crime. She, just like. 
Yeah. Really shows you what Medusa stands for, which is and not she much. she was gloating about it, too. That's what I got. I'm like, she was gloating about firing this thing. Like, that was what she wanted Plan A to be, but she knew it wouldn't fly as a Plan A, so she made it Plan B. It's so uh, weird that they uh, tried for a couple years to make the Inhumans into the X-Men when the Inhumans should be, like, Namor or something. Yeah. I mean, it, it worked. I yeah, guess. I like a bunch of... I like a bunch of that inhuman stuff. Um, but so this issue ends with Black Bolt is ready to uh, set off the T-bomb and uh, inhumanize everyone in the universe. Uh, but Vulcan shows up for them to have a final really super-powered punch-up on the bomb before it explodes. Yeah. Which, like, hell yeah, great way to end the War of Kings with a battle between the two kings. Yep. And he, he expressly ignored Talon's... Uh, machinations for the Shi'ar. Talon's like, wait here. I'm going to solve all your problems. And Vulcan's like, no, I want to punch him. Flies off. Yeah, which... It's kind of emblematic of the way that he was doing this entire thing. And you could feel it all crumbling around Vulcan. Like, Vulcan is like, no, 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 just listen to me, listen to me. And Talon's like, "Um, you don't seem like you have it. And Vulcan's (laughs) like, I totally have it. But he is lying. Um... The last fight is pretty cool. I am always really conflicted about Black Bolt because he's such a weird character, but, like, I don't know why he does it for me. Uh, he's The way he flies around, it has all this cosmic power that doesn't really get explained, and the, the, uh, he can't use his voice, so he's got to, like, use other means to shoot lasers out of his forehead or whatever, that tuning <laughs> fork on his forehead. Yep. Like, I, I just find his, his visual design and his place in the story to be really compelling. Um, mm-hmm. and Vulcan, so Vulcan notices that, um, Black Bolt is trying to kill him, but is trying to keep the bomb safe, so Vulcan, like, really starts letting loose, and, um, it's at this moment that Crystal's like, okay, sister, I'm gonna take care of your problems, or whatever, and she and Lockheed come in for a rescue operation, um, and while down on the planet, um, uh, I don't remember which planet, I think it's the, the Shi'ar homeworld, which Gladiators. is Chandelar, Chan- right, they're on Chandelar. Gladiator's kind of just walking around in the wreckage being sad. He picks up the scepter, and everyone's like, well, I guess you're the new king. And they, they're yeah, all, like, which reaching is, up for him. It's a fun beat, right? He picks up the scepter just kind of nostalgically, and then he gets caught, and everyone's like, oh, are you claiming the throne? And he's like, I, I, and they're like, thank you. And then he's like, fine. Well, he's not um, even like, fine. He's like, god damn it. <laughs> Yeah, it takes him a little while to come around. But this actually sets up um, years of status quo, because Gladiator rules the Shi'ar until just a couple of years ago. Oh. You know who's the, you know who's the uh, ruler of the Shi'ar now? Uh, no. Well, you see, when Rogue and Gambit went on their honeymoon, they went on vacation into deep space. Uh-huh. And they went on a whole crazy adventure where they found this egg, and the egg hatched, and it turns out that that was um, Lilandra's egg, fertilized by Professor Charles Xavier, um, and their daughter, their daughter, Zandra Xavier de Romani. And um, Rogan Gambit returned her to Chandelar, where she is currently the Empress. Zandra is the Empress. Oh, okay. Okay, it, uh, was, it was their kid. Not... Yeah. Okay, that's better. I thought um, Xavier had just okay. okay. Um, 
Whatever weird <laughs> sex stuff you thought Xavier did, like, I'm sure he did something equally abhorrent somewhere along the way. That, that Xavier does not strike me as a particularly wholesome dude. But no. yeah, hooked up with a space bird, she she laid an egg, and that egg grew into their new queen. And Gladiator is now her bodyguard, very happily. Yeah, he he never seemed like he liked ruling. No, although he does a pretty good job for a couple of years. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing. I, there are a lot of reluctant kings in Abnett and Lanning. You've got Ronan, you've got Gladiator, like those, and those are the people that like you kind of sympathize with, even when they're like, you know, Ronan being Ronan. But once he's kind of in the reluctant king mode, you're just like, oh, I feel bad for the guy because he's trying, but he really doesn't want to be in this position. Like it's, it, he knows that. He might not. He might be able to hold it together for however long, but at some point, he will be the wrong kind of person to be in this position. Yeah, and I think um, maybe that comes from like their Warhammer writing or something. But they 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 know that they can do that character really well, so they do him again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I really like in the fight between Black Bolt and um, Vulcan. Vulcan starts getting into the, and I'll kill your family, and I'll kill your family's family, and just, like, really evil stuff. And Black Bolt finally yells, no! And I love that panel of um, the sound effect is melting his face off. Yeah, that's, it's brutal, but it's obscured enough with the blue that it doesn't, it doesn't feel as visceral. And then we jump to the next panel and it's red and he just looks horrifying. Yeah, but like Vulcan's been such a piece of scum this entire comic that uh, watching him get like really brutally uh, finished off in this epic fight feels pretty, uh, pretty inevitable. Like we've been building towards this. Yeah. And then we get... Uh, why, why am I playing crystal? God. Yeah. I was about to say Lalandra appears. She's very dead. Uh, crystal appears with Lockjaw and makes the Terrigen inert with her elemental powers, which I'm like, okay, sure. Whatever. Whatever gets us out of this. Uh, and she goes to try to save Black Bolt and teleport away. But Vulcan as this, as a flaming skeleton jumps out and is like, I'm never going to die. Uh, and Black Bolt is stuck on this overloading uh, bomb that blows up in between Chandelar and um, and the Kree worlds. And the Kree worlds. I don't. I don't. I couldn't think of the exact planet. Uh, but There's it vaporizes. I think the entirety of the Shi'ar fleet. There's a nearby planet that they show getting blown up. Like uh, yeah. this, the most serious ordnance we've ever seen in these comics. It is. It's probably the most destruction we've seen since the Annihilation War. I think Conquest had destruction, but not in the same way. No, it was a little bit more localized than this. And yeah. uh, they show this thing that we're going to talk about a lot going forward, which is called the Fault. Mm-hmm. It's this big, glowy tear in space, and we're going to talk about it more in the next couple issues, too. Um, but Black Bolt and Vulcan both like disappear into it uh, in the explosion, and it ends with the Inhuman Royal Family kind of coming together and being like, what the hell is going on? Where's Black Bolt? And yeah. uh, Crystal weepingly saying, we won. What a perfect way to end the the main mini. Oh, uh, totally, that, right? Yeah. That is the mood we should have by the end. Yeah, they won. And just crying. It's like, no one really won in this. It was... yeah. And there was never a chance. It like yeah. it never looked like uh, this was gonna have a happy ending. Yeah. Uh, um, I I really like though. Before we move on, 
that Maximus, he normally Maximus is kind of like just the big evil guy, but here, because they were allowing him to do whatever he wanted to do, he kind of feels and understands like how bad this fault is and seeing him scared of there, he was like, Oh shit, we tore a hole in time and space with my weapon, which I knew when it was starting to overload, this was going to be bad news. Yeah, well, Maximus is portrayed here as like a science Loki, and in this, I feel like it's like at the beginning of the first Thor movie, where Loki's still on the team, but he's kind of the team asshole who they don't trust. Yeah. Um. And yeah, and so uh, Loki also might have had like a moment of compunction at seeing the destruction he's wreaking. Mm-hmm. Good Max- Maximus feels because Maximus is mad he could fit really well into anti-hero or villain pretty easily like he can be on the team and then he could have like a really sudden turn for the worse yeah exactly and Maximus is one of my favorite Inhumans characters he's a very good and he's a good foil totally but before we get any more of them I don't know if we're going to get any more of them um, we should talk about the last War of Kings issue then we'll jump back to Guardians. War of Kings, Who Will Rule. Which, oh, yes. Surprisingly, a lot happens in this issue. And it's mostly, like, not set dressing. It's mostly um, table setting. And I like a lot of the table setting stuff. Uh, well, that's good, because uh, it's doing table setting for the next part of the story, which is called Realm of Kings. And this is uh, just very solidly setting. This is... You're exactly right. We're we're setting the table for that final Realm of Kings arc before the grand finale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we get introduced to a brand new Consul Araki, uh, who is now female. and uh, Which I didn't mind. More women characters is great. There was a little bit of, like, gender essentialism in yeah. her appointment that I did not care for personally. Yeah. But that was that uh, was kind of the part. And But I, appreci- I did appreciate the way that she talks about her appointment and like, because she was grown or like something like they purposefully did this. It's good that from like a meta perspective, there's more characters, but within the story, it was a calculated move to like play on and use other people's assumptions and whatnot to basically be, you know, kind of continue to be the, the conniver of the group. Yeah, I, I didn't quite care for that move just because uh, they seem to be saying, well, everyone expects uh, the, the chancellor to be like an old man. So we picked like a hot chick so that you weren't like reminded of how traumatized you were from having to work with an old man. And um, while I feel that feel, that's uh, the story of my life, really, is uh, the trauma of working with old men when I'd much rather be working with uh, with young women. Mm-hmm. Um this uh yeah just like didn't didn't like uh it came across as like a little sleazy to me yeah i guess i meant i was reading it as like the family chose to pick a a form that someone like the the magister or i guess the praetor someone like gladiator or the other old men would be more likely to kind of look over and be basically playing on a lot of the the assumptions and using that to the family's advantage to better plot in the shadows because you know yeah assumptions that like the woman is unassuming and it's and the reason they're picking it is to kind of be more i don't know i I would call it a good idea with a poor execution yeah um 
so the main development in this is that after we saw Gladiator lift the scepter and everyone was chanting for him, uh, he is reluctant. He does not want to take the take a rulership. Yeah, um, and most of this issue is him struggling with that. Yeah, and um, while he struggles, de facto leadership is being given to Crystal and Ronin, which is kind of an interesting direction. I would have liked to explore that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah but I see Crystal's also point of view where she's like, I don't want to rule. I really didn't even want to rule the the Cree. Like I didn't want to be married. Not didn't want to be married to Rowan, and she didn't. But that she didn't even want that position. And now she's going to be put in front of the Shi'ar. And there's just this one panel where uh, Gladiator's like, "What do you know about the the Shi'ar?" And she's she's basically like, "Nothing. I know nothing." So God help them when they put me in charge. Yeah, which is probably the thing that um, eventually persuades him. Yeah. Um, because, uh, so they have a funeral for Lilandra, which gets uh, crashed by the uh, Imperial Guard, who are like, if, until we see Vulcan's body, there's no way we're going to let an inhuman rule us. Which, a lot of the politics of this war have been pretty broad and like, you know, like uh, moving the plot. But that kind of feels real to me. Yeah. That I'm after so all glad, these regi- regime changes, they comes, would be comes in. Does his good old superhero landing and is like, fine, I'll take it. You can't object to it. And he like basically stares mentor in the face. He's like, fine, you don't want an inhuman to rule? I'll rule in the meantime. Yeah, and like I was saying, that lasts for a surprisingly long time, and he does a pretty decent job. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of other teases on the last a couple of pages of this issue, but actually I would like to get to that uh, after Guardians because it will mean more. Well, first we've got the Talon. Right, I mean, that doesn't change anything, but just uh, Chris is still out there, Talon's still out there, and yeah. now like everybody's looking for Chris Powell because they think he's the assassin who killed the Empress. And apparently Iraqi was Talon the whole time, which or in the, you know, the new Iraqi. I'm like, all right, sure, whatever. Yeah, she's part of the Sinister Order. That makes sense to me. Of course she yeah. is. Of course she is. I thought it would be a different kind of Sinister Order. <laughs> oh, well, hopefully there's still time, because I would love a story where uh, the Talons team up with Mr. Sinister. <laughs> That's what I want to read. Oh, um, Guardians. But yeah, yeah, Guardians. So you're very excited about this. We're starting with Guardians number 16. So much Guardians. So much Guardians. And it's time to jump to the future. Do we yeah, jump it is... to Friday the 13th in the year 3009. Um, I think we actually st- we start on the Thursday the 12th, but we're uh, we're building to Friday the 13th. Oh, we start on Thursday the 12th? Yeah, they're there for a day. Damn it. Damn um, it. Apparently okay. they appear in Avengers Mansion, which is now a museum. Yeah, so uh, a bunch of the Guardians, that being Cosmo, Star-Lord, Jack Flag, Bug, and Mantis, all travel to the year 3009 where they come face-to-face with the other Guardians, with Martinex, uh, Major Victory, Charlie 27, Yondu, and Starhawk uh, reunites with her team. And uh, this is like the culmination of a bunch of weird shit we've been building to. Starhawk has been talking about how the future tenses in flux, and the events of the uh, comic set in our present are affecting the events of the story set to the future. And that mm-hmm. is reflected here, because uh, they the circumstances keep on changing, and the day keeps getting reset. Yeah. And this is also where we find out that the T-bomb 
is going to tear reality a new one. This is when read before War of Kings number six. This is kind of where we really find out, oh, that was the big thing that they were trying to that she was uh, coming back in time to try and stop. Yeah, she didn't know it at the time. Right, all the vague warnings we've been hearing were about the conclusion of War of Kings. And again, I think that they just like, they nailed it with that makes the end of War of Kings feel huge. Because otherwise I would be like, oh, a new status quo that's going to last like another 20 issues or so. But instead it's like, oh, this is actually affecting like huge amounts of stories and uh, and also like ties into all the mysterious pasts that we've been dealing with. Yep. Um, did you like Wait. the page turn reveal? Where uh, we see that Avengers Mansion is on like a little rock floating in a void. That's always fun. It's always fun when that happens, especially because that's all that's left. It's kind of it really sells kind of the the desperate uh, the desperation of everyone involved, especially when the Badoon invade again. Yeah, they say that they uh, survived like roaches, and again, I like don't know much about the Badoon, but that tracks. I guess were I guess the Badoon were just villains of the original Guardians of the Galaxy and they needed to make it fit, or do you think Abdan Lanning just took one of the one of the other ones that I don't know Giffen was referencing and was like, you know, why don't we make the Badoon more important? Uh, no, I've read some of those older uh, Guardians comics and the Badoon is like the main uh, villain for most of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and the joke that Abnett and Lanning develop is that the Badoon are, like, not really seen as a serious threat in our time, but they're going to grow to become the most uh, important uh, group in the galaxy. Okay. okay. Um, the Badoon are, like, mostly defined by having, like, this weird sexist culture where their men and women live on separate planets. And then they also have the Zoms. Yeah, they got Zoms, and I think they got Moms. <laughs> <laughs> As you um, do. I, th- that was Mons, like short for monsters, not like short for mothers. <laughs> I I figured. Well, Starhawk gets a good. Uh, she kind of goes out, blowing up a bunch of zombs. Uh, she gets to yell her catchphrase a few times. Uh, she get her catchphrase. I th- she must have watched a lot of Breaking Bad, because she just keeps yelling, "I am the one who knows." Oh, I am the one who knows this is a way cooler catchphrase than anything on Breaking Bad. I am the one who knows this is a great catchphrase. I should steal that for a D&D character. <laughs> um, but it's got to be one that every time the person looks into the future, they're wrong. <laughs> they're the I, I mean, I'm not going to... I'm flipping through these pages, Elias, and, you know, I think that they, they look cool, they hit real hard, um, but there's only one image that really uh, did a lot for me in the whole issue. Is that the one of the, the Celestial Dyson Sphere? Yeah, so you find out that this entire issue takes place within a Dyson sphere made up of all, all the Celestials interlinked. And, like, um, superhero comics often have to sell uh, beings and moments of great power in this way. And, like, boy, did this. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, all the Celestials are being enslaved by the Badoon? That's, like, unthinkable to me. And that's how you know the Badoon are serious threat. Right. Um... And <laughs> I, I like so Star Lord has to um, intercede with one of them, and I, I you know the mechanics of this are kind of complicated and not that interesting. But it turns out that nowhere waking up in the present is Star Lord using the Celestials in the future to send a message back to Adam Warlock. 
love that time travel bullshit. But I really I do like how they didn't drag it out for too long. It wasn't a big mystery for more than one issue. Yeah, one issue was the exact right length for that mystery because yeah. uh, you didn't forget. You didn't forget, and otherwise it would have felt kind of like, all right, fine, whatever. It's like, did you really need to spend that much time building it up? No. One issue, perfect length. Which really also works because then the next issue goes back to the final battle of War of Kings. So we're uh, we're flipping off issue by issue. Uh, we're going back and forth between the two timelines. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we get that final battle. We get some, you know, Quasar getting beat up by Medusa again. Cause which, like, Quas- fair. Fair. Uh, but the rift <laughs> opens up and we get Space Squid. Oh, yeah, so now we get to see the moment, like, seconds after the fault opens up, and it turns out that the fault on the other side of that is just like Cthulhu tentacles. Space squid, space squid, space squid, space squid. I love space yeah, you're... squids. Yeah, that was my favorite part of Solo, a Star Wars story, was when there was a huge, <laughs> scary space squid. It's why I don't like Zack Snyder's Watchmen movie. No that's space true. squid. Yeah, that's one squid less than you than you were owed. Exactly. People say that it would have broken suspension of disbelief. You've got superheroes. Come on. Yeah, it's uh, it's absence broke my suspension of disbelief. Yeah. So space squid attacks. They kind of beat it back. Um, I just want to pause for um one of my favorite moments in this entire saga. Actually, is the oh, interactions here between Maximus and Groot. <laughs> yep. Where um, completely understands everything Groot is saying. Although it is, it's also implied that Rocket doesn't, and he's been making it up the whole time. Yeah, this has been treated pretty inconsistently, but I just I like the gag that Maximus either is just hearing what he wants to hear because he's Maximus the Mad, mm-hmm. or he's just like really eloquent and ele- educated, and of course he learned the language of the tree people. He's very polite. Of course. Yeah. Although, again, in Giffen's miniseries when we first meet Groot he speaks in full sentences he's got like all this stuff and it's only with Abner and Lanning that they really develop the I am Groot shtick right which uh, Maximus kind of uh, uh, tries to tie a neat bow on it by being like oh yes well as they get older their vocal cords get uh, hardened and I was like okay fine sure whatever but I saw the way that he talks about this and the, the humor around this in this scene I think that this was what they showed people in the pitch meeting for the Guardians movie. They're just like, there's a tree. Look at how funny this is. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, you can make a whole movie out of this. This character is great. Oh, yeah. I think it was this scene specifically. This is the scene where you see uh, how much fun Groot can be playing off of everybody else. Yeah, exactly. And it all leads up to them building essentially, I guess – they call it a relativistic feedback loop and the entirety of the universal church of truth appears because warlock called them and he's going to weave a giant spell in space to seal up the fault. Yeah. And after all the work we've been doing in these last couple issues, selling us on warlock's importance and power, I'm like, all right, let's do this. Right. Let's get into this. Yeah. And so he does it. He seals it up and, Turns out that he grafted our universe onto a like a stable discarded timeline. Uh, they lose sure. me with that, but I, I I like the yeah. It's a bunch of bullshit, but I like that bullshit. Yeah, and so we get you know 
it's a triumphant moment. Everyone's winning. And then we get a big sword through the chest. Yeah. Whoops. Of, um, yep. Warlock, Warlock gets killed by Quasar. Uh, and former Quasar, current martyr, Philavel. Right, 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 right. Martyr. Because she's the avatar of death. Warlock is the avatar of life. So, uh, she was assigned to be the substitute Thanos and kill the opposite avatar. Unfortunately, because Warlock, baked. <laughs> but... um, but sure, uh, yeah. I understand that in order for uh, Moondragon to remain alive, she thinks she has to kill Warlock. Yeah, exactly. And, um, but it turns out that Warlock is way too powerful to just take out with a sword, and well... doing so, uh, tr- like uh, lowers his his uh, concentration enough that the Magus fully emerges. Yeah. Well, only after Gamera kills uh, Martyr, and then the Magus appears and kills Gamera. So are you just losing your shit at this point? Just like half the Guardians just got killed. Oh yeah. And I'm like, what's gonna go on? What's happening? How are they gonna gonna live through this? Megas is just like, I am amazing. It's terrifying. Yeah, he's got the whole Universal Truth, the Church of Truth behind him. The universe is imploding and he's just standing there like, nailed it. Uh, the art is fantastic on the Magus' face. This I is Brad Walker, it. right? These issues? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This it's, looks like it's Brad's It's too work. solid for, for Wes Craig. Wes Craig is a lot more free, free-floating with, with faces and, and people. Uh, yeah, which I like Wes Craig, but he is a weird match for the drama of the next few issues. Yeah. His stuff, him and um, Michael Avon Oming, yeah. they have similar similar styles here. I think they, they kind of diverge as time goes on. Um, but, yeah, it, he was a weird choice for this kind of stuff. I like the future stuff, but he did the he also did the Oblivion issues. That's right, that's right. Um, and those looked fantastic, too. Yeah, he, um, n- not a knock against his style. I just think it's a weird match for the story. Yeah, it, um, it's when you're comparing the two. It's a lot, I mean, it's a good fit for... A lot of the future stuff, but I think once we once he starts drawing the cutting back to the Magus, that's when they, they lose me a little bit. Especially because it's the exact same scene we just saw, like almost identical. Yeah. So seeing that it was such a radically different art style is even more jarring. Mm-hmm. Just like a and, and this sort of thing was endemic of the era. I feel like uh, of like matching people, not taking schedule seriously, and not really thinking about how art style. Just like you write, they were so determined to get art and get it to print that sometimes they didn't think about how they were getting that art or what that art was. Mm-hmm. Um, I credit the Wicked of the Divine by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey with actually revolutionizing this practice. Which, um, which practice? Well, so I feel like with superhero comics, the two things you either have is either there's delays because we're asking artists to do way too much and they can't keep up with the schedule and the book doesn't come out on time, mm-hmm. which happened a lot in this era, or um, the artist just burns out and we replace them with a completely different artist that doesn't draw anything like them and it's it reads really weird now. Mm-hmm. With Wiccan and Divine, they always scheduled it so that after every five issues, uh, there was a guest artist for one issue and then a month off. And it ran like clockwork like that for like five years. Fair. Um, and, but, but so they built in the rest time for the artist. And I think that's become a more and more common practice to schedule when you know your artist is going to have to catch up on work. So maybe you trade off for arcs or maybe you do a special issue here and there. Yeah, and that's how it worked with a lot of Jason Aaron stuff, uh, especially with the Mighty Thor era. 
Dowderman would draw an arc and then there'd be a one or two issue break and then Dowderman would come back and, or yeah. And the, those breaks would often be, you know, a story in some other time in some other place or whatnot. Uh, and it was usually written really well to the artist. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, this is charmingly terrible of the era. Yeah. And we pick up with Killraven, who, man, do I like Killraven better than most of these Guardians. That guy has charisma, huh? <laughs> just a just little like, bit. Just like flaming red hair, and he's like a weird barbarian in a turquoise jumpsuit. Really like him. He's great. I mean, I like, I love all the Guardians, but they're a bunch, bunch of schlubs. <laughs> yeah, and uh, how, do you have any feeling? Hollywood is the other one who sticks out of me. You know Hollywood? No. But he's a lot of fun. He's like that's Santa. a si- that's Simon Williams Wonder Man. Oh, the idea Man. is that yeah, because Wonder Man's powers are like vague energy powers. He is slow aging, so he's like a thousand years older, but he's the same guy. Damn. And because Simon Williams was an actor, everyone just calls him Hollywood as a superhero name. Oh, that's kind that's kind of cool. Yeah, I just think that's a fun thing. That's from the old that's from the old Guardians comics. Oh. So I guess this is more more like the old Guardians timeline, or this is so another the, alternate one. Uh, this is the uh, team from the '90s. I don't know enough about the difference uh, to know if this is like the same timeline or if it's like later in the timeline or whatever. But this lineup was the the, the '90s Guardians that they would appear. Gotcha. Well, we end up circle. <laughs> we end up kind of circling around the Friday the Thirteenth date a few times. Uh, Jack Flag is starting to phase out of existence for reasons they do this weird gimmick where all everyone's ages change and mantis becomes a baby and cosmo becomes a puppy uh bug is a teen and star lord is like geriatric mm-hmm. um it's like fun but it kind of doesn't have anything to do with anything yeah and issue 18 eventually ends with you know them fighting in a megas's temple and you know it's not kind of the not the best ending just kind of ends yeah, um, but then we it, pick it, right back up in the next issue. So That's yeah, right. it, it it reads fun, but you think it picks up in nineteen? You think nineteen's where it uh, turns around? Yeah, I think it's where it turns around. But also, just eighteen ends at a weird place. I don't think it ends at the right cliff <laughs> cliffhanger. Uh, it kind of it it doesn't have one of those ending beats. It kind of just stops. Yeah, if this was month to month, this would have been a hard read. But fortunately, it's just a page turn. Exactly. So we turn the page, and there's this big shakoom. And who pops out but our old friend, Kang. Yeah, Kang the Conqueror is here, which makes sense. We're fucking with the timeline. Kang's going to have a word to say about that. Of course. And now I want to see a Wes Craig's Exiles book. Oh, that's a... Yeah. It's old. Give me that. Um, when Kang shows up, he tends to dump pages of exposition, which is one of the reasons why I don't think Kang has ever caught on as an A-lister. Yeah. He, uh, resets everyone's ages. Mantis is naked. Play, um, play I mean... gag. Yeah, well, take, everyone take a drink. Wes Craig plays it for comedy, and, um, uh, it's pretty... I, I do like Cosmo being like, I am naked, bring me my suit. Yeah, Cosmo's just, like, uh, way more affronted than even Mantis is. Yeah. But Kang, you know, gives us our good, good exposition dump about the Magus, gets everyone caught up to speed, and is like, well, why is this happening? Well, apparently we grafted onto 
you know, a future where the Magus existed and thus whatever. I don't know. I don't know enough about the Magus' history to know why this is important. Well, uh, I guess uh, Kang sells us on the the co- timeline where the Magus takes over the universe is, like, spreading and becoming more and more of the timelines, and we got to stop this right here. Mm-hmm. We got to stop this timeline from becoming another Magus timeline, and that will stop the spread yeah. of him taking over every timeline. And so uh, Kang gives Peter a cosmic cube. He's just got one lying around, which is fine. He's Kang. He's Kang. Um, but they go back to the beginning of the fight where um, at the end of War of Kings where Philavel killed Adam or failed to kill Adam. Mm-hmm. And he goes back and they're kind of fi- – and they stop Martyr from killing – or from stabbing Warlock, uh, and Quill is like, come on, Warlock, you can fight him. You can do it. Uh, and then the Magus breaks free and is like, nope, sorry. And, well, Warlock had asked Peter to kill him, uh, like to actually kill him before the Magus took over. Uh, and he's like, well, sorry, knocks everyone out. Uh, and... We get a big fight, get a big punch up. They shoot bullets. He's just like, I don't care. It's a lot what's of crazy, destruction. And... What's crazy is how many of the Guardians seem to get like killed or maimed. Because yeah. um, uh, Phyla still gets impaled. Yeah, Phyla gets and... impaled by, by the Magus on her own sword. Gamera gets just also stabbed. Stabbed and killed. Yeah. Major fi- victory goes kablooey. Yeah, definitely dead. He's a pile of dust and bones. Yep. I don't know what happens to um to Drax. I think he just gets kicked. Yeah, Drax just gets kicked a bunch. But so at the end of this story now, the fault is open, the Magus is triumphant, and well, the Guardians Not really, because Peter uses the cosmic quill the, the cosmic quill. <laughs> the cosmic cube. The cosmic cube to weaken the Magus just enough so that he could shoot Warlock in the head. And so Warlock is dead, and so is the Magus. Right, but the Magus, I think, got... I mean, the Magus wanted to open the fault, and the fault is open. Uh, I... Oh, that's the true. Magus... I thought they had successfully closed the fault. No, so we... I, I mean, so who will rule ends with the fault is now the border between Kree space and Shi'ar space, and the Guardians uh, managed to stop this from spreading to the entire universe... That's but, what it was, yes. But there's still a big hole that tentacle creatures are going to fly out of occasionally. Yes. So the issue ends, and they go back. And in the same way that War of Kings ends with someone crying because it's sad, uh, the same thing happens here at the end of Guardians, um, where Drax is like, Hello, daughter, we saved the universe again. It didn't come cheap. So now the other half of Marvel's premiere lesbian couple is dead yeah again. uh again what a pattern we have here yeah um, i even wrote in my notes i'm like all right so we have th- th- uh, how many all but one of the female characters of the guardians are dead yeah Moondog um, is the only one that's alive it's definitely a, re- a real maudlin note to end on, similar to War of Kings, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like the proper tone, but um, yes. th- there's some unfortunate moves. But overall, Elias, we just concluded War of Kings. How are you feeling about this grand <sighs> cosmic experiment? Man, I was not expecting War of Kings to be good. 
War of uh, Kings is good. But it it was very good. I like I said, I had no idea what to expect, and anytime you get like a battle between the humans and someone else, I'm like, ugh, fine, whatever. But it... I think this might be their best showing. If I had to recommend like a definitive Inhuman story to show you what the characters were about, their An ethos, and... ensemble story. Yeah, I would pick War of Kings. I think. Yeah, I you. Yeah, this would probably. They don't be come the out. One. It's not the most flattering light. They don't. No. You don't support them the entire time, but it really sells you on them being interesting. Yes, exactly. Which is nice. Which is kind of what you want. Especially at this point. You want them to be... I feel like the, the point of War of Kings was to show... You know, the the complexity and the pointlessness of these kinds of wars. Because we've just had two where the there was clearly a good side and they were fighting for justice, for, for whatever, and the other side was just mad. And we had that here. With Vulcan. Vulcan was very much an annihilus, a phalanx. But the good side was also terrible. And the only yeah. reason they entered was because they felt they were slighted. Like, both sides only fought because they were slighted. Yeah, it's definitely um, a grayer conflict. And even though I think a lot of people would tell you that that's not something that they would want, um, give it a read. It, it works really well. Having mm-hmm. the, the moral ambiguity makes the consequences feel that much more impactful yeah and what's nice also is that the main series you could read it on its own yeah totally yeah the the, you don't the central need any series of the stuff around it uh to to understand it and enjoy it which is often a rarity with with these kinds of things yeah and has everything to do with the fact that it was planned by the same writers oh this is true um and I'm glad you like the status quo because we are sticking with it for at least another couple of episodes because next time we are starting up with Realm of Kings. Huzzah! Um, if you're reading along with us at home, uh, we are going to be starting with the Realm of Kings number one one-shot. And then uh, after all this jumping around, it's going to be pretty easy. It's going to be a couple of uh, spans of issues and a couple of miniseries. We are reading Guardians of the Galaxy number 20 to 25, Realm of Kings, Inhumans, number 1 to 5, Realm of Kings, Son of Hulk, number 1 to 4, and Nova, number 29 to 31. I think you can find all of those in a big trade called Realm of Kings, um, and otherwise uh, they are available on Marvel Unlimited, etc. Mm-hmm. Yep, you can find them all there. Uh, and then the Guardians are included in the next Guardians trade, which is also helpfully titled Realm of Kings and Nova in the final Nova trade, uh, which I think is also subtitled Realm of Kings. I don't know. (laughs) I didn't look that one up. But either way, that's where we are at with the next reading order if you're reading in trade. Uh, And I'm excited to see what Realm of Kings is all about. I have no idea what this could be. Yeah, I've returned to War of Kings a bunch of times, but I haven't read Realm of Kings in years, so I'm very excited to revisit it. Should be fun. So where can they find you, Jake, on the larger interwebs? I can be found on Twitter at rambling underscore moose, and you can find me on multiversitycomics.com, where I'm usually writing about X-Men, and currently also writing about Attack on Titan, which I got a lot to say about, as one might imagine. Elias... Mm-hmm. Same question to you, my friend. If people wanted to encounter you on the interwebs, where would they go about doing that? 
You could find me on Twitter at Quetzalish, Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. It is my superhero name from the year 3009. Uh, you can also find me writing at multiversitycomics.com, where by this point I will have wrapped up my reviews and reading of uh, Demon Slayer, but I will still be going on and doing Babylon 5 for a little bit longer. Uh, so please read those. I am enjoying doing it. Uh, read my Demon Slayer reviews just for the faces. I highlight some of my favorite panels from those comics. Uh, even if you don't know any of it, you will laugh. I guarantee it. That's the Elias guarantee, folks. It's the Elias guarantee. Stamp it on it all. And we will see you in the Realm of Kings. Excelsior.